Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Now, this section, starting in verse twenty-six, is the fourth of the five warning passages in Hebrews. And if you remember, and this should always be in the back of your mind as you read or study Hebrews, uh, people being addressed are Jewish people but they are either possessing believers, in other words, they're truly saved, or professing believers. So they give lip service to Jesus, but they're not truly saved. So it's addressed to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people, and some are professors and some are possessors. And the, war, the five warning passages are all warning those who are professing the Lord who are in danger of going back to Mosaism. Remember, at this time, the the temple is still standing. The the priesthood is still active. The sacrifices are being done daily. And so all the accoutrements of Mosaism, not Judaism, although Judaism was a problem too. There's a difference between Judaism and Mosaism. Judaism is a religion of the rabbis. And that's where uh, Jesus had to oftentimes... um, Uh, have issues with the Pharisees who embraced the oral law. And so, but Mosaism was alive and well with the temple, with sacrifices, with the holidays and that type of thing. So it was a very, very strong allurement uh, to go back to that system which could not save anybody. It's kind of like if you came out of a religion and got saved, maybe say Catholicism. I know at times there's been a strong draw on some people who come out of Catholicism and and get saved, uh, or perhaps at least make a profession of faith, to go back into that system. Uh, Well, the draw is even greater back at this time because Catholicism is is a religion of the popes. Uh, It's not a religion from God. But Mosaism was from God. Uh, And so there would be that much stronger draw. So this warning is addressed to unbelievers. It's clear from verse 39, and we'll look at that at the end as we get there, Lord willing. Uh, Believers cannot be headed for perdition. Perdition is hell. Uh, And that's what talks about verse 39. Those who would draw back are going to perdition. Well, Hebrews, as much as any book, solidifies the understanding that we are secure in Jesus. That there's nothing that we can do to lose our salvation. 
that you, if, if you are truly saved, you are not, cannot, will not head to perdition, go to hell. That's what it's saying. So, speaking of those drawing back and, and going to perdition, uh, there's that contrast between the two groups. Now, after clearly showing the superiority of, of Messiah's, Jesus' sacrifice, over the Mosaic sacrifices, and in particular, the Yom Kippur sacrifice, because remember at the very beginning of this chapter, it talked about the high priest, and, and at that offering, that once-a-year offering that he made on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was, um, did what it supposedly did, then there'd been no need to do it again the next year and the next year and the next year. And the very act of repeating it every year shows that it could not accomplish uh, forgiveness of sins and, and, a, and a clear conscience before God. Um, so Jesus' sacrifice is so much better than the Mosaic and, and showing that Jesus died once. And just it, it hammered it home in chapter 10. He died once for the sins, once for the sins of all, once, once, once. Uh, there's no more offering for sin. He is the only offering, uh, true offering for sin. So uh, what it is, uh, it's encouraging at the end of this chapter, the Jewish believers, uh, or really the middle, let us to move forward in their relationship with Jesus and other believers. And if you remember last week's lesson, there, are, there were five let us challenges. Now, three of them were stated, two of them were inferred. Uh, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Let us encourage one another, and so on. And so it's, it's an encouragement for Christians in what we should do. But now we come to that warning to these Jewish believers, and I put this in quotations, who are merely professors and not possessors. <clears throat> and to me, it, it's like every warning passage picks up in its intensity. Um, the first warning passage that we find in Hebrews in, <clears throat> in chapter 2, right in the beginning of chapter 2, it says, you know, don't, don't let it slip by. Don't let the truth pass you by. Uh, and, and the picture back there was, uh, if you would think of a stream and, and a canoe or a little boat on a stream and, and, and the water just gently, if it were, not rapidly, but just gently uh, moving that canoe or boat down the river and, and you're there swimming or whatever and, and it just passes you by. So it's a, it's a kind of a subtle challenge. Don't let the truth of Jesus just slip by. Well, as it goes on, it gets very intense, and it gets, very, it gets much more intense each time with a warning. We're going to see a very intense presentation or challenge to these professing believers in this fourth warning passage. So, verse 26, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, there are, there are three thoughts here that we should, that must be covered, really. Uh, for if we sin willfully, number one, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, number two, 
And finally, number three, then there remains no more sacrifice for sins. And I can just say right off the bat in that last phrase, that doesn't mean there is no longer a sacrifice for our sins. There is. Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. It's forever. It's efficacious. Uh, it will do exactly what God set out for it to do. But what he's saying is to these people, if you willfully sin after you've received the knowledge of the truth, you'll get to that point that, that you can't be saved. That there is no sacrifice for your sins. Because, and that's a very, very troubling place to be. Troubling place to be. Now, I don't think there are a lot of people that end up in this place. There's certainly those that do. If they do end up in this place, they have no concern whatsoever. Because they've gotten a hardness of heart. Um, I have met people in the past who have agonized over a particular sin that maybe they committed. Could have been adultery, could have been whatever the case might be. And they thought for sure that they had committed the sin unto death. And they were miserable. And they were trying to get consolation and over it. And the very first thing that you can tell that individual who's miserable over whatever sin that that individual committed, bringing them to the point thinking that they have committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin because you feel so miserable. You're under conviction. Uh, so you have not committed the unpardonable sin uh, without even considering what the unpardonable sin is. But that's how they usually phrase it. Uh, but these are people, number one, who sin willfully. Now, it's not for all unsafe people this warning. Uh, it is addressed to those who, after being enlightened, willfully reject Jesus. And that's the second phrase. They, we, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, but let's consider if we sin willfully. Joseph Thayer, in a Greek English lexicon of the New Testament defines willfully, the Greek ekklesios, as, quote, voluntarily, willingly, of one's own accord, tacitly opposed to sins committed, inconsiderately and from ignorance or from weakness. So he is just willingly opposed to sins, no matter what the sins are, uh, and, and rejects totally, any kind of responsibility. Ta, uh, Vines Dictionary, Greek Dictionary, Vines defines willfully, quote, deliberately with settled intention, not by a sudden impulse of the will. So this is somebody who knows what he's doing, who is, this is just not an emotional reaction, this is not, um, this is not, recently somebody told me somebody I don't remember um, somebody's child died or something I forget the story uh, and I forget who told it to me uh, and the mother was having a very difficult time in her relationship with God why did God do this that type of thing well that's an emotional response not a good response but it's an emotional response to a tragic event this is different this is, as Vines says, deliberately with settled intention. Thomas Hewitt on Tyndale New Testament Commentaries, the Epistle of the Hebrews, says the fact willfully, quote, is placed first in the Greek for emphasis. 
So in the Greek sentence, it's, it's, it's first, willfully. And the emphasis is that's where the responsibility lies. It relies with the individual. It's placed first in the Greek for emphasis, shows that the deliberate and continual rejection of Christianity is a decision of the will. And, and if I was writing, I would put Jesus, not Christianity. You know, uh, but be that as it may, I didn't write Tyndale's New Testament commentary. Uh, but anyway, um, Anna says, so he shows that the deliberate and continual rejection of Christianity is a decision of the will which acts contrary to what one would have expected from the knowledge of the truth which has been received. In other words, you would think after this person has received the knowledge of the truth, which is the second phrase here, that they would embrace it. But they didn't embrace it. They actually turned 180 degrees away and willfully, deliberately rejected the truth. Now, the only other place this word is used in the New Testament is 1 Peter 5.2. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but, not by constraint, but willingly, deliberately, um, voluntarily, pointedly. And so, feed the uh, flock of God willingly, not for filthy lucre, money, but of a ready mind. And so, a teacher of the gospel, a teacher that God has put over the flock, a pastor uh, who teaches the word of God, we need to be pointed, dedicated, willing, voluntary in proclaiming, teaching the Word of God. And this is not, you know, it's not a happenstance type of thing. It's the only other pl place in the, in, the, in the New Testament this word is used. In Hebrews here, it's, it's, it's the, the contrast. It's, it's the opposite. They have completely rejected the Lord. Now, sin here is a condition. It's not a one-time act. So if somebody says, you know, you, Gerald and what's the other guy's name? I got this music group, George, Gerald, and Frank. Um, they've probably heard the gospel and they've rejected Jesus. Um, I don't know these guys, you know, at all. Um, my guess is they have not reached this point. If one doesn't accept Jesus because he doesn't know enough, hasn't heard enough, hasn't been convicted... Uh, by the Spirit of God and the different aspects of it, and we'll, we'll consider that in a little bit. Because one doesn't accept the Lord, that doesn't mean he has willfully rejected the Lord. This is a much more serious issue right here. This is somebody who has deliberately, after understanding everything, said, I don't want it. And it's a settled condition. It's a settled condition. Vines, again, come out, comments that sin here is in the present continuous tense, signifying not an act or a series of acts, but a condition. So this is not one act or two acts or the fifth time this person has heard the gospel says, that's not for me. I mean, how many times, don't raise your hand, don't yell out a number. How many times did you say no to the gospel prior to ultimately accepting the Lord? Probably numbers of times. 
I would imagine. Well, you were not in a settled condition, obviously. Uh, it was a one-time actor, two-time actor, three-time or four, whatever. This is different here. Now, these people, the middle phrase, these people have received the knowledge of the truth. They've understood the gospel. They've understood the truth of the gospel. Delitz writes this about knowledge, epinosis. When epinosis is used, there is the assumption of an actual direction of the spirit to a definite object and of a real grasping of the same. So that we may speak of a false gnosis, a false knowledge, is what gnosis, when you, when you, when we, we, you know, we talk about atheist, theist is what? Meaning, God. The Latin prefix A is no God. So when you have agnostic, we pronounce it agnostic, but it's literally agnostic, like atheistic, agnostic. Uh, A again is the prefix no. Gnostic, no, or, or, or their derivative that we have here, gnosis, but gnostic is what word? Take a guess. Knowledge. knowledge, thank you. That wasn't even a guess. He knew. No knowledge. So an agnostic or an agnostic, I just don't know. I don't have any knowledge if there is a God or if there isn't a God. Now, the, that, whether, whether you, we could debate whether that's real or not, but that's what an agnostic theoretically is. Well, Delitz writes, when epinosis is used, there is the assumption of an actual direction of the spirit to a definite object, the spirit of the person now, not the, not the Holy Spirit, uh, to the spirit of a, a person, of a definite object and, a, and of a real grasping of the same. So the understood, understanding is this person understands. He has been convicted of it, or she for that matter. There's a real grasping and understanding of it, so that we may speak also then of a false knowledge, a false gnosis, but not of a false epinosis. And the writer, by the use of this word, gives us to understand that he means by it not only a shallow historical notion about the truth, See, that's where most people in the world are with Jesus. It's the shallow, historical notion of the truth. That's where most people are. That's where most religious Christians are. They don't know the Bible. They don't know, if you, they don't know John 3.16. Most Catholics don't know John 3.16. They don't know the Bible. They, they, ha they have, as it's put here, a shallow, historical notion, not grasp, not understanding, about the truth. So he says, the writer, by the use of the word, gives us to understand that me, he means by it not only a shallow historical notion about the truth, so he has that little bit of knowledge, but a living, believing knowledge of it, which has laid hold of a man and fused him into union with itself. That's Franz Delitz, a little wordy, but he says it well. So epinosis is, he's fused this 
knowledge of Jesus. He's understood the gospel. He's understood what Jesus, and it becomes part of his being. It becomes part of himself. It fuses into himself. So this is somebody uh, who, who, who fully understands who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and totally rejects it. And I would submit to you, and, and, I, and we, I think we may have it down here. I don't, sometimes don't remember what comes up. Anyway, um, the, the Spirit of God's pre-salvation ministry, John 16. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, judgment to come. This is somebody who's been convicted. He knows the reality of it. He knows it's true. But for whatever reason, he says, but not for me. I don't want it. I reject it. It's not for me. And it's a settled reality in his life, his heart. Now, I believe this is very few people who reach this point. But you find this type of teaching. Um, John 16, I do have it right down here. I should have just read what it said. Nevertheless, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Is it expedient for you that I go away? For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is come, he will reprove the world. That's the unsaved people. This is the pre-salvation work of the Holy Spirit. He will reprove or convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin because they didn't believe on me of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judge. And so clearly the Bible tells us that the pre-salvation ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction in the life of somebody. This person that Hebrews is talking about has been brought to that point, and as the middle part of verse 26 says, he has received the knowledge of the truth, and he really understands it. In 2 Peter 2, 18 through 22, we see the same type of thing. We've looked at this in the past, but we'll look at it briefly again. Uh, verse 8. Uh, uh, this should be verse 18, I'm sorry. Uh, left out the one. For when they, the false prophets, speak great swelling words of vanity... They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. So he's talking about false prophets. False prophets have a, uh, an alluring message. Um, they, they are... Clouds without water, tells us earlier. They are uh, wells that are dry. Um, but they entrap people because their message is alluring. It's enticing. And these people that are entrapped in it, more often than not, are entrapped because they don't have the Spirit of God. They're not saved. They cannot discern Good, good truth or, or truth from error. And then it goes on in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, these are the people who've listened to the false prophets and the false teachers, and they've come out of the pollutions of the world, 
They've escaped the pollutions of the world. But how have they escaped it? Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through hearing about him, knowing about him. They're, they're again entangled therein. And then the key phrase in this verse, and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So these people have come out of the world. They've heard about Jesus Christ. They go to church. They go to a Bible study. They hang around with Christians for a while uh, because of all that's been, uh, been promised. But ultimately, they're again entangled in the world and overcome. That's the key phrase. See, a true born-again believer, a true child of God, a true possessor of the Lord cannot be overcome. We can fall into sin. We can do things wrong, uh, sinful acts, even, to the, even sexual sins, all kinds of different sins. But those sins never become the ruling factor in our life. We are never overcome by those sins. Because who is the ruling factor in our life as a believer? Jesus. And we've looked at this before, and we will look at it when, again when we get to chapter 12, which develops this, the discipline of a believer. And God will discipline a believer even unto death. And there are plenty of illustrations in the Bible. And that's why a true believer is never overcome by that particular sin. Because God will discipline that individual and discipline that individual. And there are three stages of discipline. And it gets harder and harder and harder. Uh, more difficult in the discipline. And if that one doesn't get right, God says, okay, have it your way. He kills him. And he takes him home. Now we'll look at this in chapter 12 in more detail. But the whole point being... Uh, here we have these people are overcome, marking them out as unbelievers. So the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Why is the latter end worse than the beginning? The beginning, they knew nothing about Jesus. But then they came to a knowledge of Jesus, not saving knowledge. But they came to a knowledge of Jesus, and then they, they left, and they were overcome, and they went back into the world, and the latter end is worse. And that is because one of the primary ways God is going to judge unbelievers when he sends them to hell. Remember in, in Revelation chapter 20 at the, at the great white throne judgment, and it says, the books are opened. And he talks about all those who are not written in the book of life, that means all the lost people, and they says, and the books were opened, and they were judged out of those books. Now, they are judged for eternity based on what they did with Jesus, and not being in the book of life means they rejected Jesus. But then they are judged out of the books, and it's going to be their life. I don't know if there's going to be a replay of their life, at least a, uh, uh, a Cliff Notes version, remember Cliff Notes? Yeah, thank God for Cliff Notes um, when I was in school. But I think one of the major things in that book that will ultimately be a determining factor on, on their eternal punishment is what did, how much did they know about Jesus and what they did with him. And if they knew nothing to begin with and then found out about Jesus and turned from him, the latter end 
The latter end is worse than the beginning. And then it says in verse 21, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. The way of righteousness is through Jesus. Then after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Better they had never heard the gospel. Better they had never heard of Jesus. Because if you hear of Jesus and you turn from him, the ultimate punishment in hell is so much more severe than somebody who's never heard. Better if they had never heard. But they turned from the holy commandment. Verse 22. It's happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog has turned to his own vomit again, the sow that was washed to, his, to her wallowing in the mire. Uh, you, an illustration, we've read this before, you've heard this before. Uh, you let a dog go after it vomits, if you let it go, what is it going to do? It's going to eat the vomit. Why? That's what dogs do. That's the nature of a dog. You can take a pig out of the pig pen. You can clean it up. You can take it to church. You put a nice bow tie on it and a coat. And, and, then, and, ta- and then when you get out of church, you let it go. Where's that pig going? Back to the pig pen, to the mud. Why? It's a pig. It's the nature of a pig. These people only have one nature, and they're drawn back to it. The whole point of this there are, the, and they were understanding, but they rejected it. They rejected it. Now, turn your page over. These people cannot be saved. In rejecting the truth, they are sealed in this condition. That's the last part of verse 26. There remains no more sacrifice for sins. These are people who, if they ultimately end up in this position, and they're living, they're on earth. They don't give, they're not, the Spirit of God doesn't work with them anymore. If the Spirit of God doesn't work with you, there is no conviction of sins. You don't care about your sin. Probably at this time, your conscience has been seared as well. It doesn't matter to you. So you're, so you're not going to weep and cry and go to the pastor and say, Pastor, I can't be saved because I, I did something, whatever it might be, and it's so horrible, and, and no Christian can do what I've been. I just feel terrible, Pastor. I can't be saved. But right away, that tells me he hasn't committed what verse 26 speaks of. Or the unpardonable sin. This is not the unpardonable sin, by the way. Uh, although it's unpardonable, okay? Uh, you cannot get it. But we see this throughout the scriptures. And back in the wilderness, it talks about the wilderness um, exodus, the wandering, and after 14 verses of telling the Israelites in Psalm 106 all the miracles that God had done for them, what did they do? They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. They tempted God in the desert, and he, God, gave them the request, but sent leanness into their soul. And the older generation died in the wilderness. They had seen so many miracles. They had seen the hand of God. They stood at the, mount, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Mercy. And God spoke out of that cloud and the fire and the darkness. And, and even they said at that time, Lord, whatever you want us to do, we will do. But then they got 
into a very bad condition. They lusted. They tempted God. God said, okay, have it your way. But he sent leanness onto their soul. It's a very, very sobering verse. Or how about 2 Thessalonians 8 through 12? Chapter 2, 8 through 12. And then shall that wicked be... Now, this is another one. Look, look at verse 11. We'll just jump into the middle of it before we put it in context. Isn't that the best way to interpret the Bible? Just take a verse and try to understand it without the context? Okay, we'll do that first. Okay? And for this cause, verse 11, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Boy, there are people that God's going to send strong delusion. Maybe he's talking about the people in um, the wilderness. Maybe he's talking about the people in, in Hebrews that we're looking at now. Uh, but certainly God's going to send uh, some people strong delusion that they should believe a lie. So obviously there's a point in time that people will not be able to come to the truth, right? Heavy. But when is this particular? Go back to verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Who is the, when will the wicked one be revealed. Who is the wicked one? The Antichrist. When will the Antichrist be revealed? After the rapture, beginning of the tribulation period. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So ultimately, Jesus is going to destroy him. Even him, the wicked one, the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan. He's coming with all power and signs, and lying wonders. Now, when, when he comes with power and, and signs and lying wonders, can you think of a chapter, well, let's start with a book. What book do we need to go to to find that the Antichrist is, is, is deceiving people with signs and lying wonders? Revelation. Okay, here's the harder question. What chapter? What chapter? I, anybody know the chapter? 13. There we go. Chapter 13, he does it, the false prophet does it, with signs and lying wonders. And chapter 13 is right around the middle of the tribulation period, because one of the things that happens at that point in time is every man will receive what? The mark of the beast. So go back to verse 9. Even him, the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. <coughs> These people are going to perish. Why? Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, oftentimes you will hear people teaching that this is what happens to people who don't accept the Lord prior to the coming of Jesus, and when the rapture happens, these people are sent strong delusion and believe a lie. Isn't that how you normally hear this? Yeah. But it's wrong. When is this taking place? After the wicked one is revealed. And he comes with signs and lying wonders which is not in the very early part of the tribulation period, 
but picks up and certainly in the middle part of the tribulation there's all kinds of signs lying signs and wonders that the Antichrist does and he does it with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish these are lost people <coughs> because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness you know who these people are these are the ones who take the mark of the beast the middle of the tribulation period the strong delusion the, the second Thessalonians 2 passage is addressing people in the tribulation who have received the mark of the beast the strong delusion is sent upon people after the wicked is revealed whose coming is after the working of Satan this refers to the coming Antichrist who is revealed after the pre-tribulation rapture it only thus pertains to people in the tribulation period Revelation 12 through 14 shows that the timing of this delusion is the middle of the tribulation period and after when people receive the mark of the beast, Revelation 13, 16 through 18, and their eternal destiny is now sealed, Revelation 14, 9 through 11 tells us if they've received the mark of the beast, they're eternally damned. That's what this second Thessalonians passage is. But the point I, I want to bring out is here's another point in history, which doesn't affect us today, where God... There's no longer a sacrifice for these individuals because they have rejected it. What have they willfully, deliberately done? I'm going to follow the Antichrist. I'm going to take the mark of the beast. They are marked as followers of Satan, if you will. And they are destined for hell. They have no other destiny. Now, this is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, by the way. Um, or the, un, the unpardonable sin, and we're not going to get into that because of time, but it is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's a completely different thing, completely different subject. Yes. I have no idea. Um, I have, it could be. I have no idea. It just, it's, 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 a, it's a number that it's in the hand, right hand, right hand or the forehead. Could be, but I, I wouldn't land just on that. So, um, so, so I, I don't know what it is. Look at verse 27. And again, this is the, wor the, the warning. And, and, and the end of verse 26. For if we, if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remains no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Wow, all they have to look forward to is a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. And they might not have that right now, but ultimately they will have it in spades. And there's going to be this fearful looking of judgment and God's indignation which will devour them. I mean, the language here is much stronger than the previous two, three warning passages that we read earlier. The others are just as, as, as warning, 
But this one, the language is extremely strong. So who, those who reject the, the gospel, there's only one judgment. There's only one judgment. The wrath of God abides on that individual right now. Devour itself is in the present active infinitive, meaning it will forever devour and never cease. So the, 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 the punishment of the adversaries of God, those who reject it, is ongoing. It's forever. It's eternal. Charles Spurgeon preached a message from Psalm chapter 7, verse 12, on December 7th, 1856, titled Turn or Burn. This is the teaching of this passage, turn or burn. Those who have turned from the truth will burn in the lake of fire forever. Turn or burn. Then verse 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. So right now he's quoting from Deuteronomy. And uh, there were, were there people who despised the law of Moses? Certainly, yeah. Um, and if there were two or three witnesses to that, they would, they, would, they would be put to death. There were people in the Old Testament put to death under the Mosaic law because they despised it and they wouldn't follow it. And it was from God. Despise literally means reject, refuse, to slight. I don't want it. The only other time this word is used in the New Testament, devour, uh, despise, excuse me, is Mark 7, 9. And he said unto them, full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Here Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. You willfully reject despise the word of God for your traditions. That's the lot, unfortunately, of a lot of religious people, especially religious leaders, especially the leaders. Then verse 29. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose you, how much worse will the punishment be? Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? If people were put to death under the Mosaic covenant, if two or three witnesses said they did whatever they did that was deserving of death, and they died. Of how much of a severe punishment should one receive who rejects Jesus? What you have here in this last portion is literally the rejection of three witnesses. In the Mosaic Covenant, if there were two or three witnesses, you could be put to death. Here you have the rejection of three witnesses. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you have despised 
in essence, the triune God. Who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. See, the love of the Father gave the Son. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And when you despise that and reject that and throw it away, you are rejecting the Father's love for the world. The one who has given his son that we can have life. And you have trodden under your foot the son of God. You have stepped on him. You have trampled on him of whom the father gave that you might have life. You've counted the blood of the covenant. Wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. The blood of the covenant was the blood that Jesus willfully shed for the sins of the world. This individual has counted the blood of the covenant. He understood it, going back to verse 26. But he said, so what? Lots of people died. Lots of people were crucified. The shedding of Jesus' blood is no different than the shedding of any other man who was crucified. I know he died on the cross. But it doesn't mean anything. It's not a holy act. It's an unholy act. It's a common act. See, holy is distinct, different, unique, intrinsically spiritual. So if you are, if it's unholy, it's not any different. It's not unique. It's common. It's every day, and it's not intrinsically spiritual. And, and, and these people saying, I understand Jesus died for the sins of the world. I understand he died for my sins. But his death was no different than any person who died. There are a lot of people who were crucified. Thousands were crucified by the Romans. Why? Jesus was no different than any other man. And to say that is trampling underfoot, despising the blood of the covenant. Saying to Jesus, I reject what you did for me. And have done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Who brings conviction into the life of a lost person that they can be saved? Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. Literally, despite means to insult. It's kind of like the person saying, Stop bothering me, Holy Spirit. I don't believe this garbage. I don't believe this stuff. Jesus doesn't mean anything. There's no God. If there's a God, he can't be a loving God. Who would give his own son to die? That's crazy. And, and, and what you have here is you have this despising, this insulting. The, these three witnesses, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that this individual is rejecting. And if two or three witnesses under the Old Testament law could bring death to an individual who despised Moses' law, how much greater will the punishment be for someone who knowingly insults, despises what the Father has done through his Son and the Spirit of God applying it to his life. How much greater will that punishment be? It, it, it's unfathomable. Go on to the next page.
page, verse 30. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongs unto me. I will recompense, I will pay, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. The vengeance here is not in the negative sense. Vengeance is judgment that is due. Judgment that is justifiably merited by that sinner who rejects it. Vengeance God will bring upon that individual. I will pay that individual. And then verse 31, he culminates this thought. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now again, the, the context here is speaking of apostates, unsaved people, lost people. This is not saved people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, this, of the living God. You know, tragically, the only ones who can begin to understand and appreciate the, uh, the, the, the ramifications, the fearsomeness of these thoughts are believers. Unbelievers think it's just a bunch of fairy tale silliness. But it is a fearful thing. I mean, I don't think we can grasp the awfulness of this thought. All that God has done throughout creation, throughout history, through the word of God, through witnesses, to try to show people his love for them and what he has done. And these people, and again going to that, back to verse 20 of 26, these people have sinned willfully, deliberately, decidedly, pointedly. Even though they know the truth, it's because they've known the truth, they've received the knowledge of the truth, and they have decided, this is not for me. I don't want it. I hear it. I understand it. I, I understand what you're saying. I don't want it. Jesus is not for me. It's a fearful, fearful thing. I, I wish unsaved people could understand this. Now, Sometimes in a preaching service or a teaching service, when you teach uh, on, 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 on hell or on the judgment of God, people get under deep conviction. Uh, yeah, I, I think I read many years ago, I read um, John Wes, not Wesley, um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Who, wrote, who was that? Who was that? Jonathan Edwards. And, and, he would, and, and Jonathan Edwards was perhaps, perhaps the premier intellect in the history of America. I mean, this guy was a brilliant guy. Uh, and his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He, 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 I gather, I mean, this is back, I think, in the 1800s, uh, 1700s. Early. It was, pardon? It was a long time ago. Yeah, I'm not nearly that old. Um, and I don't think anybody here is. But anyway, he was not, he was not a, Ch a Charles Spurgeon. He was not an eloquent speaker. He was not, he, 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 was, he didn't, he, there was, there, I gather there was very little, if any, inflection in his speaking. Just monotone. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, and you've got to listen to me, and I'm just going to go on. And this monotone, and you're going to hear about God and Jesus and hell, and if you don't get right with God, yeah, yeah, that type of thing. Well, how soon do you fall asleep? You know, 
Well, you say every Sunday when my pastor does that. Anyway, hopefully not. He would walk, they said, into a factory. And like when he, when he preached a sermon, sinners, and, and he would just speak in a monotone voice. And people would fall on their knees with the fear of God and weep and cry and say, what must I do to be saved? The Spirit of God was, I gather, on him like the Spirit of God has been on few people in the history of the world. Because it's not the eloquence of the preacher. It's not the speaking ability of the man in the pulpit. It's the Spirit of God that brings conviction. So people can see the fear of, fear of God. You know, uh, I, think, I, I always think of uh, Jude. Um, in Jude verse 22 and verse 23. How many chapters, by the way, are in there in Jude? One, thank you. That's why you don't have to say chapter one. Uh, verses 22 and 23. And, a, and if some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You know, there's a time occasionally for compassion in reaching people. And... Certainly compassion is a trait that all believers should have. But there are some people that you need to hear about. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. That's why it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, in the midst of this severe warning to professing believers... The writer encourages true believers to continue on in their faith with three reminders. There's going to be three reminders here to believers now. Remember, there's professors and there's possessors. God has promised to reward believers for their perseverance in times of difficulty and service for him. This promise parallels the promise of Hebrews 6.10. And if you remember, Hebrews 6.10 is the third. This is the fourth. Hebrews 6.10 is at the end of the third warning passage. And Hebrews 6.10 is, uh, is an encouragement to the believers. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Here, the end of the fourth warning passage, we have the same type of encouragement with three reminders to believers. Again, in the midst of this warning passage, what's the first reminder? Remember your faithfulness and his provision through your persecution. Verse 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Now, these who were illuminated speaking here of true believers. After you were illuminated, remember what your life was like after you got saved. You had all kinds of problems. You had all kinds of afflictions. So, number one, a memory can be good. Or bad. 
How many people are driven crazy by their memory? Usually, uh, uh, people who are driven crazy by their memory, I don't believe most of them, if not all of them, are not saved. They're lost. Um, because all they can remember is their sins they've committed and the guilt that they have and that weighs them down and they have no forgiveness. I, I, think, I, I think we could empty our mental hospitals if we could get them the gospel, they'd truly get saved. So, but this is talking of believers. Memory can be good. God tells us to remember what he's done in our life during the times that we've had difficulties, how he's ministered to us and gotten us through that. Now, we should focus on the good things of God, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any grace, think on these things. So, so we are commanded you know, to think on the good things of God not the negative things of the world or whatever. But certainly, this starts or can start with remembering, remembering our salvation and where we came from. I think of Psalm 42 and 3. He brought me up also out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. And here the psalmist declares the, the problem that he had. He was in a mud pit. He was in that horrible pit of miry clay. There's no way he could climb out of it. And God lifted him up and put him on a solid rock. And he put a new song in his mouth. Even praise unto our God. And many will see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Certainly our remembrance should start at the beginning of our new birth, of our new life, of our salvation. And then to remember what God has done in our life. You know, I, I've shared over the years, I've, I don't know how many times I've shared my testimony. I've shared it in radio, I've shared it in banquets, I've shared it to individuals, I've shared it in Sunday schools, I've shared it in church. I shared it at Christmas Suite at Colonial about eight years ago. I don't know how many years ago it was to about five or 700 people every night for five nights. Uh, I've shared it over in Israel. I've shared it in the United States. I've shared it in Mexico. Uh, I've shared it all over the place. But I always seemingly end most of the time at when I get saved. The thing that I enjoy about myself, I'm glad I got saved. But what God did in my life after I got saved. That's what he's talking about here. Remember what God's done in your life after you got saved. You're going to go through trials. You're going to go through afflictions. But remember what God has worked. It started with salvation, but how he's worked in your life. So the command here specifically is to remember how God has worked in your life after you've been saved, after you were illuminated. The Greek word for remember means call over in your mind one by one. Well, I remember when I had this financial need and I prayed and there was a check in the, in, the, in the mailbox. I remember one time when yada, yada, yada happened and God did this for me. And just recount and remember all the times that God uh, worked in your life. The suffering of these Christians had been going on for a long time. Ye endured a great 
fight of afflictions. They endured it. To endure something means it's ongoing. They endured it. The Greek word for fight spoke of an athletic contest, and in the second century it was used of martyrdom. And yet they persevered because they remembered what God had done in their life. So the first thing, call to remembrance, the former days, and what God has done for you. Then look at verse 33. Partly, whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by re re reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. Now, why do you get afflictions? Why do you get problems? Well, you had of reproaches and afflictions. You were made a gazing stock. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, and the world's going to hate you. That just comes with the territory. Uh, so there are two actions that were happening to believers that made them a gazing stock. Uh, number one, they were being ridiculed and persecuted for, for being Christian, for living a godly life. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. If you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, verse 16. Let him glorify God on his, on his behalf. Don't suffer as a busybody. Don't suffer as an evildoer. Don't suffer as a murderer. But if you suffer as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, the Messiah, praise God. They were being afflicted because they were serving God. Not only that, they aligned with those who were also serving God. They became companions of them that were so used. So instead of hiding from those who were being persecuted, they stood next to them. They became companions. And they were persecuted not only for their life, but for standing with their brothers and sisters in the fight. But remember what God has done for you. Then turn the page over, verse 34. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have a, in heaven a better and an enduring substance. substance. So the writer says, you, you had compassion of me. You, you allowed the, 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 the taking of your goods joyfully. You gave, knowing that ultimately you had a better place and an enduring substance. So you willingly gave of what you had you had compassion for those who had need, and you helped meet that need joyfully, bearing another, one another's burdens. And the ultimate focus that allowed them, or helped them, maybe is the way to put it, to get them through, was their, for their focus on heaven. Now, Hebrews 11, the next chapter develops this thought. The, and we call cha chapter 11, what do we call that chapter? The Hall of Fame of Faith. All these men and women of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith, and so on. Uh, because they trust, well, that's what it's talking about here. Chapter 11 will develop this in much detail. So the second thing that we are challenged with is to remember your promise of reward for faithfulness. First, remember what God has done in your life after you got saved and how he has worked with you and delivered you and enabled you to be faithful in, in serving and walking with him. Second now, remember the reward that you have for faithfulness. Verse 35. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Don't lose your faith. There's great reward ahead for you. 
Now, we can look at the rewards. Uh, we're not. There's all there's five crowns that we can earn. Uh, the blessings that await us, the afflictions in this life pale in comparison. So what we need to do is we need to recognize that. We need to be focused on this. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll be, live to be 70. Well, this crowd, let me, get, let me up it a little bit. Maybe you'll live to be 80 or 90 or 100 or 110. God forbid I live to be 110. How long is eternity? Forever. To the uttermost. Compare 100 years on earth with forever in eternity. There's no comparison. Verse 36, you have need of patience. That after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. So you have need of patience. Don't get impatient. Wait on the Lord. Now, don't pray for patience. Because the scripture says, tribulation brings about or works patience. So if you pray for patience, what are you asking for? Tribulation, trouble, afflictions, difficulty. You want patience? Pray for it. And you're going you're gonna to learn to be patient. So it's the only way you get patient, through difficulty. So we have need of patience. Now, they are being severely afflicted. So what do you need to do? You need to focus on God, what he has done in your life. Remember that, how he has been faithful. And remember, you have a reward in heaven. But be faithful, be patient. You have need of patience because after you have done the will of God, it may be 10 years down the road, it may be 20 years down the road, whatever the case may be, you're going to receive the promise that he's given to you. Now, I think that promises two things. One is the promise of heaven. Secondly, it's the promise of rewards. But patience means to hold steadfast, unmovable. One writer suggests the context here is holding your position in battle even when the bullets are whizzing past. Just stand and fight. You know, you can't defeat Satan with your back to him. There's no armor in the back, right? You go to Ephesians and the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and the, and the loins girded about, you know, and so on. If there's nothing in the back. If you turn around and run when you're in the battle, you're going to get an arrow in the back. Stand and, and fight and be patient. Desire to do the will of God and the ability to exercise patience is intertwined. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Verse 2. Uh, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is alive shall appear, then you shall also appear with him in glory. Look to the future. The promise ultimately is heaven. But then look at verse 37. For yet a little while. Be patient. For yet a little while. And he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. Jesus is coming. We don't know when. It's going to be a little while, maybe. The emphasis is on Jesus could come at any time. The imminent coming of Jesus. He will come. 
the world will scoff, the world will laugh, the religious people will say, it's a bunch of fairy tales. Jesus is coming. The third thought is a challenge, really. You have to choose true faith or spurious faith. Will you be a possessor or will you be a professor? Now the just shall live by faith. If you're truly saved, you're going to walk by faith. You're going to trust the Lord. And by the way, next chapter, it's going to give us so much detail on faith. Now faith is the substance, and it goes on. So in next chapter, it's going to tell us everything you want to know about faith and probably things you didn't even want to know about faith. I don't know. But it's going to go into all this detail about faith and faith trusts in the Lord, looks to the future, knowing God can deliver you. And the just, those who are truly possessing of the Lord, truly say, we live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul, God's soul, shall have no pleasure in him. Because this person is an unsaved person. But we, verse 39, and, and I'm trying to wrap this up, but uh, you know, 1 John 2.19, back in verse 38, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now this is not just talking about someone who decides he's going to leave, you know, church A and go to church B because whatever reason. Now this is somebody who has, who has left the believers and he's flying his true colors. This is that individual that we looked at in Second in Peter, that individual uh, who is overcome by the world and, and like the, the, the pig goes back to the pig pen and, and the dog goes back and eats the vomit. So this person goes back to the people he really enjoys being with, those of his same nature, the unsaved person. But they were among us for a while. Verse 39. But we are not of them who draw back onto perdition. We're true believers. We really possess the Lord. We're not like them. All they have to look forward to is the fierceness, the wrath, the anger of God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, the living God. No, they, they, they draw back to hell. That's where they're going, to perdition. Kenneth Woos defines perdition as the destruction which consists in the loss of eternal life, eternal misery. Perdition. We're not like them. They draw back. But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. We're not of them who draw back into perdition, but we're those who believe to the saving of the soul. True believers cannot commit apostasy. 
cannot draw back to perdition. But there are those who do, who are professing believers, <clears throat> who, and this is a warning to them. And, and again, I don't believe this is a lot of people who have reached the stage of this warning passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. But there are those people who have. I would not want to be in their shoes. I would not want to be in their shoes. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's a sobering chapter, sobering portion of the word of God. Again, a warning to those who are pretenders. They may have the right words. They may do some of the right things. But in their heart, they scoff, they laugh. And ultimately, they will draw back, especially when great persecution comes. And I pray, Lord, that there's not one of these type of people here tonight that we all have believed to the saving of our soul, that we truly possess the Lord and we're not just professors. Lord, you know each one of us in our stand with you. And Lord, minister to us as the need that we have. Possessor or perhaps professor. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time of fellowship. Bless the food. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477 Shalom